Right now, please put your hands together for the deeply wonderful Jasper Ford. Oh. Excellent. Can you, can you all hear me? Shall I sit down or shall I stand? I'll stand up. That's a bit easier. I'll, I'll treat this chair as a lectern. There we go. Uh, brilliant. Um, uh, well, thank you all for coming out uh, to say hello. Um, we hope, hopefully it's not going to get too blustery. Um, great to be invited down here. And they said to me, do you want to, do you want to, be, uh, do you want to talk to someone? Or you know, would you like to do a solo event? And if you do a solo event, what would you like to talk about? And because I'm an author, I said, well, I'd like to talk about me. Um, because essentially, you know, that's what we do as authors. We talk about versions of me, essentially. Um, so, so I said, okay, well, I'll do that. And, um, and they said, well, what will it be about? And I said, well, I'll, I'll just do my origin story, uh, which, you know, I, what I think is quite interesting, and hopefully you will too. Um, but, but aside from that, I also, I also like to assume that there are many people who haven't read me. Uh, I'm Jasper Ford, by the way, uh, just in case. Um, I have to assume that people uh, maybe here who have not read me in which case, maybe you'll understand a little bit about my writing. Um, I, I used to ask for a show of hands about who'd, who'd read me, but I don't do that anymore um, because there was one particular instance where there was almost no one who knew me. <laughs> so I don't do that anymore. Um, and also, I think I should assume that there are people here who have read me, in which case you might, uh, I'll try and lift the curtain about um, how I got round to writing the sort of books that I, uh, that I wrote. Um, I'll also assume there might be a few writers here so, so I'll direct, hopefully, some uh, things to you as well, which might actually help in your uh, writing uh, trajectory, because I had an unusual writing uh, story trajectory where I got where I am. Um, uh, that's about it, and I'll, I'll end up with talking about, hopefully, The Constant Rabbit um, by the time uh, I get uh, to the end of it. Now, I've got to talk for about f uh, an hour, but uh, questions are really, really good. I like questions, because I think that one of the... One of the things you learn about becoming an author and going to festivals is because you initially think, um, I'm going to go to a festival, I'm going to sort of, you know, give stuff to a festival. But actually, it, it's a two-way dialogue. When you go to a festival, you actually bring things away with you as well. Not only the people you meet, the other authors you meet, but the questions. Because when I first uh, started doing this, it was people saying, you know, where do you get your ideas from? And I had no idea then because I hadn't really thought about it. Because writing is kind of an intuitive dark art. You don't really 100% know where you got your ideas. So people saying to me, why did you do that thing with dodos? And then I go, yes, why did I do that thing with dodos? And thinking on my feet, I come up with an answer. And this is actually how I got to basically know how I wrote, which is kind of an odd way of looking at it. <laughs> because people who don't write think that we just sort of have an idea, and it's all in our head, and then we just put it down. It's not like that at all. We kind of have a vague idea, and then we start exploring. And these stories grow in an organic and rather strange and slightly indecipherable way of putting it all together. So it's actually quite nice to actually figure out how I wrote by people asking me, how did you write? And they often say things about, um, you know, tell me about the intercontextuality of your, of your Thursday Next novels, Jasper. And I go, I'm sorry, the what? <laughs> um, and then you realize that, in fact, storytelling is innate in, in humans, kind of like grammar, and that other people have put, put rules on top of them. So it's, it's quite an interesting way of looking at it. Um, so anyway, so I, uh, I write in the, uh, what's called the genres, right? Which is basically, it's a mixture of science fiction, fantasy, a little bit of crime, a little bit of this, a little bit of everything, real sort of squunged in together, real super cross genre. Now, I didn't start as an author. Uh, I started actually in the film industry. So I spent 20 years working in movies. And that was 20 years ago, so they're all old movies now. Um, things like sort of, you know, Goldeneye and Mask of Zorro and... Um, uh, entrapment, uh, quills, all kinds of, uh, uh, did I say Goldeneye? I said Goldeneye. Yeah, all kinds of sort of, you know, kind of big blockbusters at the time, but really you buy them for, you know, one ninety nine as a DVD, um, you know, in the local Sue Rider. So, you know, <laughs> but they were important to me when I made them. So the interesting thing about being in the film industry is that I didn't work in the creative side of the film industry. I was crew, right? I was on the camera crew, right? It's, the, it's basically, it's the ringside seat. If you love movies, it's the ringside seat. The camera is here. I'm a focus puller. I have to keep the actors in focus. 
right, which is slightly more complex than you might imagine because I can't look through the camera, right? So my job was to make sure that Sean Connery didn't look like a big pink bath sponge, right? <laughs> that was essentially my job, keep him nice and sharp and in focus, you know? And if you ever see, uh, if you ever see like entrapment and he's in focus, <laughs> that's me. So that's kind of what I did. So, so it's, a, it's, it's a kind of odd segue to get from actually being crew, being a, a camera technician, which is a very techie thing to do, uh, to writing. So the thing about being in the movie industry is that everyone who's in the movie industry wants to be about seven jobs higher, which generally is a director, right? Especially if you're an assistant director in movies. You know, so you can always ask an assistant director, in movies, you know, so tell me about your script. And they go, uh, how do you know I had a script? And you go, all assistant directors have a script. You know, and they go, ha ha, very funny. So I, I was kind of the same way. I wanted to work in movies. I wanted to be a director. I wanted to tell stories. So because I wanted to tell stories when I was small, um, but I was an undiagnosed dyslexic, so I was basically known as stupid from about the age nine, Right, which is a bit of a problem if you want to be a writer, because it, it wasn't something I saw that you could do, right? Because as far as I could see, because I come from a very academic family, is that writing was something that clever people did, right? But I was obviously very attracted to story, and, and the story-making sort of medium that I was attra attracted to was movies, because I loved movies, loved theatre, loved reading. I had no problem reading. It was the writing that I had a problem with. Um, so I gravitated towards the storytelling medium that I adored, which was movies. So I'm in the, I'm in the film industry, and I want to make movies, right? So the way to make movies in those days, very difficult, right? It's not like nowadays where you can make them on a, an iPhone. You actually had to make them, you know, with film, and you had to buy film, and you had to process film, and you had to, you know, get a crew together and all this sort of stuff. So someone said, um, you can always write your way into movies. This is what Bob Zemeckis, you know, Quite a, quite a famous uh, director, did the Back to the, Back to the Future trilogy, among many others. Um, he said you could always write your way into the movies, because if you write a good script, it can't not be made, right? And I think that's actually a really wise statement. In fact, you can go further and you can say, you can actually write your way, way into any, um, um, any job in the creative industries. You sculpt your way into being a sculptor, you paint your way being into painter, you trombone your way into being in an orchestra. So, you know, this is the way to get in. And I thought, okay, brilliant. Um, I'll write a script that can't not be made. Fantastic plan, right? So I started writing screenplays, right? So I was writing screenplays. And they were terrible, right? Just awful, you know? And, and then I heard someone else say, and this was Graham Greene, right? And he said, because he wrote the, film, the, the screenplay to The Third Man, which I think is like one of the best movies ever made, along with sort of Chinatown you know, and, um, uh, and District 9, you know, three, I think, you know, like, best movies ever made. And, and he wrote the screenplay to The Third Man. Uh, if you haven't seen it, you need to see The Third Man. Just absolutely knock out. You will adore it, you know. Um, anyway, so what he said was that he wrote a treatment to the screenplay before he actually wrote the screenplay. So he was writing a short story, essentially a very big short story, long short story, not quite a novella, but not quite a short story, somewhere in between, a sort of short story novella. And, 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 and I thought, that's, a, that's actually quite a good idea, because what it does is it gives you pace, it gives you atmosphere, it allows you to flesh out the characters a little bit without actually having to wait until the casting. And you can do all kinds of things that, you know, that a screenplay wouldn't do. So I went, well, if it's okay for old grey bags, it's certainly okay for me. So I started writing a short story. And I was about 27 at the time, and this was my treatment. And I, and I started writing, and I went, hang on. This isn't quite as hard as I thought it was going to be. This, is actually, this actually seems to work quite well. And, and the words seem to be falling in the correct place, right? So I was thinking, maybe this writing lark is possible. And I'd finished this, this short story, and I went, well, that kind of works. It was about 3,000 words long. And then I wrote another short story, and I went, well, this kind of works as well. None of these ever made into a screenplay, because I suddenly had fallen in love with the written word. And all of a sudden, I didn't need a camera. I didn't need to buy film. I didn't need a crew. I could do it all on my own with 26 letters and nine punctuation marks. <laughs> Anything. Any story you can tell with this basic building blocks, the DNA 
of writing, just simple letters. A keyboard, I mean, it's only that big, for goodness sake, and you can do anything on it. You know, once you've learnt the, um, learnt what the, you know, the rows of letters say. So it's qwerty uiol, which is the first, um, and then is uh, astavagurgical, uh, which is the second. I can't remember the third. Qwerty uiol, astavagurgical. Oh, no, I can't remember the third. Anyway, so, so that's what I started doing, and I suddenly fell in love with this new medium. So I started writing, and then writing more short stories, you know, some of which were hardly crap at all. And, <laughs> and eventually, one of them got longer and longer, and it became a novel, right? And I sort of, I, I was now accidentally a novelist, right? I, ha I wasn't being paid for it, because it was such great fun, and I was sort of learning my craft. It took actually 13 years between that first short story and actually being published. That's how long it took, 13 years, and I wrote six and a half novels in that time. So for you, all you writers out there, and you're only on your third novel, <laughs> keep at it, keep at it. It's not rejection, you know, you're sending all those manuscripts out. It's not rejection, it's you learning your craft, right? Because although storytelling comes completely natural to humans, because we are essentially storytelling, you know, we're very social and we love stories. And we, if you, if you think about it, there's no part of human endeavour that is not touched by story because we communicate by them, you know, uh, we educate each other by them and, and we entertain each other by them. There's stories everywhere, you know, and you meet, you listen to two people on the bus. Oh, how have you been? Oh, well, you see, I went over to, you know, Launceston and do you remember Dottie? Dottie, yeah, who used to run the bakery. Oh, yeah, I remember. Well, i tell you what happened to her. <laughs> and it's like, all of a sudden, everyone in the bus is tuned in, you know. What did happen to Dottie who ran the bakery? So, you, you, you know, stories are everywhere. You know, humans love, love stories. Um, anyway, so, so I suddenly sort of realised that I was writing these stories, and I sort of go ahead of myself and then back again, is that I was essentially writing stories with one way in which I wrote, which is what I call the narrative dare. Right, the narrative dare, great idea if you're someone who likes to write short stories but want to kind of really push yourself. Because the thing about a narrative dare is you think up an idea, right, like um, Humpty Dumpty uh, was murdered, who's responsible, right? Simple. I mean, did he fall off the wall? <laughs> yeah, he'd been sitting on that wall for years. <laughs> You know, it was, was it suicide? Well, it was Easter, a depressing time for eggs, as you can imagine. <laughs> but, but no, what if, what if it was murder? And, and who killed him? And why? You know, because his, his, if you remember, you know, I'm trying to sound a wall, fell, on, fell off. It, it, there's always the broken, the broken shells there at the bottom of the wall. That's, you know, the traditional view of, of Humpty Dumpty. But what if he was, like, broken before he ever hit the ground, right? You were talking ballistics here. <laughs> I, had to, I had to actually do a little bit of research into hydrostatic shock waves. <laughs> because if you put a bullet through a very, very large egg, what happens? And it is hydrostatic shock waves, which have a very devastating effect on a very large egg. And then I thought, well, this is a traditional sort of police procedural. So we've got to have the scene where that very sort of down at heel sort of... Um, a pathologist is sticking the shell back together again with sticky tape, trying to figure out where the cracks radiate, radiated out. Was there an entry wound? Was there an exit wound? And with this narrative dare, who killed Humpty Dumpty, you start looking around to try and see how you can make this idea work. Because if you think about it, a very large egg being murdered doesn't really make any sense, <laughs> right? But I wanted to make it as a police procedure, so I thought, well, why don't we just change the canvas to suit the picture, rather than sort of making the picture suit the canvas, if you see what I mean. So I created a world in which there was uh, the, whole, the whole of Reading. I set it in Reading. I, I, I don't know why. I have this thing about the sort of, you know, going down the M4 corridor, except books in Swindon. So I set this book in, in Reading with a nursery crime division of the police department, and they looked into crime based around nursery, nursery rhymes, right? Nursery crime division. And, of course, because there's lots of, lots of murder and mayhem in nursery rhymes. I mean, tons of it. I mean, if you think about Hansel and Gretel, for instance, there's, uh, there's child abandonment, abandonment and attempted murder twice, 
you know, both nights, remember, the first, you know, with the pebbles and then with the crumbs, crumbs and pebbles. Uh, and, then, and then there's kidnapping, because the, the witch, it's always a witch, uh, kidnaps them and then sort of fattens them up for a potentially cannibalism, and it all ends up with, um, with murder, you know, by burning. Uh, but it was self-defense, but, I mean, you could, you could sort of kind of push that. It's, it's, it's pushing it a bit, self-defense. Did you have to burn her, push her in? You could have just run out? Anyway, so, you know, all these kind of nursery rhyme stories, very dangerous, uh, fine for children, dangerous for impressionable adults, obviously. Um, <laughs> like, like Alice in Wonderland, you know, fine for children, impressionable adults, you know, avoid. And if there's any message from Alice in Wonderland, especially through the looking glass, it's don't do drugs. <laughs> you know, really do, do not do drugs. Anyway, so, so this... this so what you do is I created this world in which Humpty Dumpty could be a large egg and exist. So there's lots of nursery rhyme characters, and I threw in Prometheus as well, as, you know, lives upstairs um, at um, where Humpty Dumpty used to live. Um, he was being extradited. Um, uh, I think, um, how did it work out? Zeus wanted to extradite him um, back to the Caucasus to be chained to the rock again, if you know the whole Prometheus legend. So, you know, I was throwing that in as well. Um, so anyway, so I wrote this book, and, um, and it was completely um, didn't sell at all, right? I, I sent all these begging letters. In the old days, you used to send a chapter, um, a chapter of the book, and then you used to do a sort of begging letter, which is a little bit of pricey, and it was like, it's uh, Inspector Morse meets Mother Goose, you know, Humpty Dumpty, question mark, who killed Humpty Dumpty, and all this kind of stuff. Echoing silence, you know, no one's interested. And I thought, well, okay, that's, that's not really working, but I'm... I'm not done with the nursery rhymes. So I thought, right, the three bears. There's got to be a narrative dare hidden in the three bears somewhere here. Okay, what is it? What is, what is the whole unanswered question within the three bears? The whole, the whole engine that drives that story. And I thought, well, there's two things, basically. Why were Mummy Bear and Daddy Bear sleeping in separate beds? <laughs> right, that's, that's my first... That's my first worry, because this, this hints at a sort of marital discord within the Bear family unit. Something going on there. And also, the biggest issue that I had with the Three Bears story is how can the porridge be at different temperatures when they were poured at the same time? Okay, it doesn't make any sense from a thermodynamic point of view. Okay, big bowl, Daddy Bear, porridge, too hot, yeah. Mummy Bear, medium bowl, too cold. Baby Bear, small bowl just right. Doesn't, doesn't stack up. Right, and any, any detective would instantly know there was a problem with the porridge in the three bears. So I wrote a sequel to a book I could not get published, which, which shows that my strategy was not sort of finely honed, but I was still having fun with it. So this is a book called The Fourth Bear, which is, which is up, the plug plug, which is up in the, um, in the bookshop. The fourth bear, and it essentially, the narrative dare is explain how the porridge was at different temperatures when it was poured at the same time, right? Set in the same kind of world as the, the Humpty Dumpty book, but again, I do, I do actually, do actually um, explain that right at the end. Uh, well, no, about two-thirds way through then, but I'm carrying on fun, having fun, so it, it goes you know, right to the end. But uh, essentially, it's about a, uh, a missing persons case. Um, Goldilocks is an investigative reporter who um, apparently there's a fight in the bear's house, all the furniture is trashed, um, and then she's found dead in Somworld, a First World War theme park uh, just next door to where the bears live. Um, Somworld is not in the story. I, I, I added that bit on, I read that Somworld. I just, thought, I just thought it was a good idea to have a theme park based on the First World War, because that's so outrageously awful, no one would do that. They did, they did. Um, the <laughs> Writing satire in books is really hard these days because <laughs> it's like the world is now like pre-satirized at inception. You know, try and satirize someone like Donald Trump. <laughs> Very difficult, but, you know, the genius, uh, I can't remember her name, there's a comedian, and all she used to do was do his speeches word for word, and it was <laughs> hysterically funny, and I went... That's the way to deal with modern satire, is you, you don't need to do it. You just do the same thing. So, very worrying. Anyway, so the fourth bear. And could that one get, find a publisher? No, not at all. You know, even with the whole, you know, porridge. And people, and clearly, publishers are going, what is this rubbish about porridge? You know, who wants, who wants to know, you know, why it was, 
you know, different temperatures when it's four at the same time? And why were they in separate beds? And was there a fourth bear involved? Which clearly there was. There had to be a fourth bear involved. And I, I, did, I was going to call the fourth bear Camon. Yeah, it always takes a moment, that one. Yeah, and then there's always a groan afterwards, and that's why I did not call the fourth bear <laughs> Camon. I, I called him Jeffrey or something like that. It makes much more sense. Anyway, so I could not get this book published. And this is, you know, for any writers uh, who, who are here, this is where it gets kind of interesting, and you might want to sort of suddenly sort of start taking notes, is that I'd written two books, and I thought they were of marketable you know, value. They weren't, they're a bit rough around the edges, but I, th I thought they were sound in, in the way what they were trying to do, trying to sort of play around with stuff that was, I'm moving the furniture that's been in your head since you were nine, and I'm, and I'm stacking all the furniture in odd places that look unusual and sort of funny, you know, because the whole, you know, mummy and daddy, they're sleeping in separate beds thing. It's, it's funny when someone points out this stuff that's been there your entire life and you've never noticed it, right? It's like, it's like walking into the room and there's a bear, and it's like, there's a bear in the front room. It's always been there. Has it? I don't know. It just strikes me as funny, you know. So, so where I was with this is that um, these books did, could not find a publisher. And I thought, OK, three choices, right? I stopped writing because it's clearly not working. I'm not going to find a publisher. So let's just give up the whole thing, right? No point in carrying on. Second one was um, the only piece of advice I got when I was being a writer. Because when I was a writer, I, I didn't go to festivals. I didn't go to writing groups. It was just me in a cupboard with my, with my word processor. That was it. Um, so the only bit of advice I got was look at the bestseller list and write something similar, okay? Which is not good advice. I, I personally, I do not think it's good advice. You've got to write for you. What is interesting about your writing is your worldview. Anyone who has, it works in the creative industries, you have a worldview that you bring to your vision, that you bring to your art. And it is that slightly quirky, off-kilter worldview that people buy into. This is a world I haven't seen. It's like, you know, really great photography, really great sculpture, really great painting, really great poetry, really great music. These this is a worldview that is coming to you, and it's slightly different, it's slightly exciting, and it's something that you, maybe you can't do or you can't, can't think of. You know, when I, when I read other, other readers, uh, other writers reading, I want to see ideas I couldn't have and skills I do not possess. And I think that's very exciting, ideas that you could not have and, and skills that you do not possess. And there's something very exciting about that. I like watching, you know, you know it's like watching a really good bricky at work. You know, that's a skill I don't have. And they do that, and they do, 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 do like that. It's, it's amazing. And you're like, you're watching it for hours until you get shooed off, obviously. If you ever watch um, scaffolding erectors, this is an interesting one, watching scaffolders who are really good at what they do. And I was watching them, and it was like, it was a two-story building. And there was someone at the bottom, and he was throwing up the, uh, the swivels and all those clampy things. And at the top, the, uh, the person at the top was literally taking them out the air because they arrived in front of him and they were like and he was just about to go into a free fall right at the top when it you know when it doesn't weigh anything and he just literally took them out of the air and that's all he was doing and they just appeared in the air in front of him and they and they did this for like 10 minutes I was saying, and every single time it's exactly right and it was beautiful because it was a skill I didn't have and there's something very attractive about it Anyway, so the third option, going back to this where I'm meant to be this, is it didn't matter what I wrote because no one would read it. <laughs> Freedom. Freedom. I didn't have, I mean, these were my straight books. These were police procedurals. Who killed Humpty Dumpty? What happened to Goldilocks? They're basically police procedurals with a lot of silly jokes and a bit of fun, but that's exactly what they are. Someone's murdered, someone's missing. Uh, you investigate it, you have a detective, you have a detective assistance, there's a few, you know, a few obstacles, they find out who did it and the wrongdoer is punished. Right, so simple, basic stuff. Now, these weren't selling, so I thought, right, I can actually do whatever I want, right, which is a kind of great freedom. So I thought, right, well, what's next on the narrative dare list, right? And I had this idea that Jane Eyre is kidnapped out of Jane Eyre and someone has to get her back. Right. So Jane Eyre, the character from the book, obviously. Now, she's kidnapped, not from any old book. That wouldn't do much damage. You know, if you just get her out of a paperback, wouldn't do much damage. But if she's taken out of the original manuscript, then the original manuscript is blank from page 210 onwards. 
everybody's copy is blank from page 210 onwards. I saw now this is an idea I can really work with. Right, this is really, really good. So I wrote this, this new book, The Air Affair, which was essentially about this. And again, learning what I'd learned from the, the Humpty Dumpty books was that I needed the, to make the canvas work because the idea that you can kidnap a fictional character out of an original manuscript obviously wouldn't work in our world. So I had to make the world slightly off kilter. I also had to make it a world in which everyone loves, um, uh, everyone loves literature much more. Right? They adore literature in this world. And that being so, you'd have a sort of literary detectives who would deal with this kind of nonsense. Right? So I went, OK, that's good. So I, had the, I sort of set up this world in which you had um, hooligans um, who uh, used to fight each other in the streets, you know, knocking each other's uh, teeth out on who was the best Shakespearean, uh, who was the best um, Elizabethan playwright. You know, was it, was it Kit Marlowe or was it William Shakespeare? You know, and they'd get in these terrible sort of punch-ups after having very erudite conversations about who was, you know, the best Shakespearean playwright. And, um, and you know, and was, was Kit Marlowe really stabbed in the eye in Deptford and all these sort of stuff. And then you'd have this huge fight and get very drunk. And I kind of liked that idea. You know, that, that humans were kind of the same and they were kind of violent, violent but instead of, you know, maybe uh, soccer hooliganism, as was then, less now, um, that that's what they'd get involved with. So this idea started to come along and I wrote The Air Affair and I had this character named Thursday Next and she's a literary detective and she basically has to try and find the world's third most evil man, um, Asheron Hades, who kidnapped um, Jane Eyre and she has to try and get her back. And eventually she finds herself back in the book trying to actually, you know, redo, get Jane back in a book and then try and stitch together all the, um, all the narrative. But so she's not seen. So she's sort of, we end up with the last sort of quarter of the book is actually takes place in Jane Eyre, Jane Eyre the book um, with Thursday Next trying to stay out of the way and make sure that Jane can rebuild the book in first person narrative. Um, unfortunately, um, there's a little bit of a problem and um, Thursday makes a few mistakes and Thornfield Hall gets burned down and Rochester gets, uh, he gets blinded and he loses a hand and Bertha, uh, Bertha dies and it's a bit of a, you know, it doesn't really work out and that's not originally how Jane Eyre ended but actually the, the, the Bronte Association actually say, no, no, we prefer it this way. Um, <laughs> it's actually a bit better. You know, we didn't like the original ending was she goes to, she goes to India with St. Rivers, who's a drip. I mean, he is. He's, I, I'm sorry about that. If you're, you're a fan of St. Rivers, um, he is a drip. And, you know, Jane Eyre just goes and it becomes a missionary's wife and it's a very boring ending. So, so I was having a lot of fun with the, with the literary sort of things like this. And then I, and because of this, I kind of tried, vaguely tried to sell it, but I wasn't really big on that. And then I added other sort of plot devices like the Crimean War was still on. Yeah, <laughs> who thought that would <laughs> carry on? Yeah, that's a bit of a, yeah, that didn't work out. Um, so the Crimean War was still on. Um, people had dodos as pets, and Thursday's father was this sort of time-traveling knight-errant who seemed to be trying to make sure that, um, that Napoleon lost at Waterloo because it, you know, was a bit, of a bit of a deal. And I just added more and more this nonsense, and then all of a sudden there were vampires and there were werewolves. Because I thought this was just fun rubbish that I just wanted to squunge into this book. And I didn't sell it that much, um, and I tried other books and, you know, as I said, six and a half novels. But when I came up to finally meeting a, um, an agent, I'd written a book called The Last Dragon Slayer, which was a kind of uh, a different way of looking at magic, a children's book, a young, young adult's book. And at the time, apparently, there was a, this other series of books about a wizard at a, a school or something. I, I don't know what happened to it. I think it just, it just sank without trace. Um, anyway, um, so, so she said to me, okay, I really like The Last Dragon Slayer. It's a really sort of weird and wacky book. But at the moment, um, publishers are being literally swamped with books about magic and teenagers and stuff like that. Do you have anything else? So I went, hmm, in for a penny, in for a pound. I submitted this book, The Air Affair, um, which is a book that was basically me just mucking around with stuff and just doing what the hell I wanted without any any sort of possibility of being published and uh, and I gave it to her and she read it and she said okay uh, this is like weird and like nothing I've ever <laughs> read before but leave it with me you know I'll see what I can do and I went well you know have it no one's interested anyway two weeks later she got a deal with Hodder and the reason they liked it is because it was different so so the very release 
you know, being told, Jasper, you're not going to be published. Do whatever the hell you want. That's what got me published. So anyone here who works in any creative endeavor, make your market. Don't listen to it. Don't look at what other stuff is being read. Sure, you know, read. I mean, absolutely. You know, you know there's no great painter who didn't see a, a beautiful painter themselves in their, in, their, in their youth or whatever, where they're learning. But dance your own steps. Do your own thing. Just carry on exactly what you want to write. Because people are interested in a different quirky view. It's that worldview again. So, so just doing my own thing actually got me published, which is kind of my, kind of my sort of origin story. So I carried on with the Thursday Next series. I wrote seven in that series. Uh, I decided that Thursday could actually travel into books, and she joins a policing agency inside books called Jurisfiction, um, <laughs> which I quite like. I, I do like making up words, and I, I do like also putting capital letters into the middle of words, just as a nod to my uh, undigno undiagnosed dyslexia. Um, because uh, I used to do that and everyone gave me a bollocking for it and I went, ha, now I'm published, I can put capital letters in the middle of words. <laughs> Got you. Got you. Um, and they also have people to help you spell, which is really useful, uh, to publishers. So, um, so anyway, so yes, yeah, so she travels into books and of course characters are always wanting to have slightly bigger parts for themselves. So, you know, when Hamlet is away on a course or Hamlet comes out into the real world in one book, uh, which is called something rotten, actually. So Hamlet comes into the real world with, with Thursday as a sort of little fact-finding tour because he thinks he may have been misinterpreted as something of a ditherer, <laughs> right? Um, you know. Uh, and, and while he's away, all the other characters in the play are trying to change it into their play. You know, so Ophelia is going, you know, this is the tragedy of Ophelia, the much maligned Ophelia who's really a lot smarter than she looks. And that should be the name of the play. And they're all trying to get in on the act while Hamlet is um, in the real world. And when he's in the real world, of course, is you have this very telling little scene in a Starbucks uh, where Hamlet is, um, is given, you know, the one thing you don't want to give Hamlet, which is a decision, right? Really, really bad news. If ever you meet Hamlet, do not ask him to make a decision about anything. So it's like, well, what would you like? And, and he does what Hamlet often does when he's, uh, when he's confronted with a decision, is to spontaneously soliloquize, right? So it's uh, to mocha or to latte, that is the question. <laughs> so he completely goes off on one. But I, I, I quite like the idea that characters in books have a very different idea of themselves than they do um, for their readers. And I think that's very true of humans, because we don't see ourselves as other people see us. And I know this because I've written people I know into my books. And I thought, well, it's kind of a little bit insulting. They never notice. <laughs> you know, and my, my mother, bless her soul, you know, used to read this character in, in the Thursday Next book. She said, this is very funny. Who did you base this on? She crazy, crazy woman. And I go, I have no idea, mother. No idea at all, you know. So it's quite, it's quite fun. So anyway, so I wrote seven, um, seven, seven, seven books in the Thursday Next series, and they just, they just cover everything. The way in which we write books. I wrote a book called The Well of Lost Plots. And it's basically, you know, in The Well of Lost Plots, um, you go down there and you buy a, um, you know, a page-turning advice, a uh, page-turning device, or you buy a, um, uh, what were they called? A, a sort of a dramatic moment, and they're in a glass, little glass sort of bauble, like those Christmas tree things. And, and you look on it, and it goes, it goes it, it, suddenly a shot rang out. And you go, well, that could be useful. You know, put it in my pocket. And it does become useful because, you know, Thursday is backed into a corner, as you do with all your heroes. You know, they cannot escape. And she goes, aha, hang on, I've got this, this thing, and you smash it on the floor. And suddenly a shot rings out, and all these people run in the door. You know, there he is, and running after, and she manages to escape. So it's, you know, sort of desert machina, and, and you can sort of play with the way in which we make and tell stories. And they, they converse in the, in the book world. So this, this world exists within books. Um, they converse in the book world um, using the footnotophone. So I could have conversations with the character in the book, and then the, the two-way conversations would be running between the, the character and the, and the footnotophone that you could read on the bottom, you know, which I kind of like the idea. And, and they had to cut off once to, to be able to stop people talking on the footnotophone. They used a, um, I, think it was a, I think it was a copy of um, Mein Kampf and Das Kapital, um, which, were, which were separated by this sort of uh, a sheet of steel. And you'd pull out the steel and then they would literally explode with the sort of conflicting ideologies. <laughs> and and that would be enough to blow a hole in the footnotophone and you could, you know, just c cut out the, the 
the, the, um, the data stream. So all this sort of you know, silly fun you can have in, in the book world. Um, after that, I, uh, I was writing a, a book, uh, again, the narrative there, a little bit complicated. It would require me an hour to explain it. Um, but it was something called Shades of Grey. Uh, that's my Shades of Grey, not the other Shades of Grey. Um, I should call my book 49 Fewer Shades of Grey, really. Not 49 Less Shades of Grey. That, that's, that's not right. Um, we were actually hoping for the accidental sales demographic, which would be quite nice. You know, that, you know, there'd be a little, people would go, oh, if you've got Shades of Grey, and they'd, and they'd give you my book instead. <laughs> um, booksellers are great, and that's another thing you discover when you become an author, is that booksellers are brilliant, and they're very, very committed to selling books, and they hand sell them. If they like a book, they hand sell it, you know. And my success in the States with the Air Affair was basically down to librarians, English teachers, and booksellers, because they just said, oh, the Air Affair, this is great. It's just written just for us and they hand sold it. So I was talking to people about Shades of Grey and people they knew who wanted um, uh, Fifty Shades of Grey would come in and say, do you have Shades of Grey? And the booksellers would go, yes I do. <laughs> and there's a code, you know, there's an ethics code amongst booksellers that you have to kind of give people the book they ask for. And they went, this does tick off the code. That was the book they asked for. It's not the book they want, but... <laughs> Ethically, I can sell them Jasper's book because I don't want to sell them the other book. So there was a very small bump in the accidental, <laughs> accidental sales demographic, but it's not one really that you want to rely on for a, you know, for a, for a uh, revenue. Um, anyway, so My Shades of Grey is a post-apocalyptic post uh, novel which is basically takes visual colour and bases an entire social order and strata around visual colour. So... Um, the, the leaders of, uh, in, this, in this world, it's based on the amount of colour you can see, either red, yellow, or blue. So you can only see red, or you can only see yellow, you can only see blue. A little bit complicated. I won't go too much into that now, but um, it's a bit weird. I'm just writing the sequel to it at uh, present. Um, after, after that, I was doing uh, the Last Dragon Slayers books, uh, the four of those in the Young Adult series. Again, uh, very, very silly. Um, they can be read by uh, grown-ups as well. I think grown-ups are like sort of children who are sort of have mortgages, essentially. Uh, I do like to think that we remain, remain children uh, for a long time. Um, uh, and so I should really, you know, for last, before we start asking questions, I should really uh, talk about Constant Rabbit. Which is, my, uh, which is my latest um, uh, grown-up book, I suppose. Um, I, I, this, I kind of call this my, my Brexit anger book. Um, and it was, it was sort of me really sort of thinking, you know, what, what, is, what, what is England like? What is Britain like? And, and I kind of, kind of thought, well, I think maybe it's, you know, not, it's a little bit darker than we imagined. You know, the green and pleasant land is probably maybe not as, as green and pleasant as we imagined, but the green and pleasant land certainly has rabbit holes in it. And so uh, my narrative there for this was that in 1965, um, 18 rabbits were spontaneously anthropomorphized, right? So that all of a sudden they're six foot tall and they can talk and they can walk and they drive cars and they have memberships to National Trust and do everything that you know, British people do, watch telly, you know, don't eat fish and chips, obviously, because they have a you know, radical vegan agenda, um, <laughs> rabbits, as you might imagine. And that's in 1965. When they arrive, it's like, welcome, fantastic, tell us all about it. You know, what, you know how do you feel about carrots? You know, this sort of stuff. You know, you know, tell us about burying. You know, it's amazing. But as the years go by, because this is set in about 2022, and their numbers rise, this, this moves. The shift towards rabbits turns slightly dark. And there's now 1.2 million rabbits, uh, which if you do your... Uh, if you do your maths, is actually shows considerable restraint in the uh, in the breeding capabilities, and um, and the United Kingdom Anti Rabbit Party or UCARP, as they're as they're known, are um, are actually uh, sort of now have come to come to power, and they have a sort of anti rabbit ticket. That's basically their politics, and because there's 1.2 million uh, of them, they decide that they're going to rehome them in Wales for their own protection. Um, and naturally, the rabbits uh, don't quite like this idea because rehoming, you know, humans have a bit of form when it comes to rehoming, and it's not generally turns out very well. But the main thrust of the book is that there's this little village in the middle of middle of Middle England uh, called Much Much uh, Hemlock, um, little place in Herefordshire, 
Um, and um, my character, Peter Knox, um, he lives there. He works for the Ra Rabbits Compliance Task Force. Um, and quite by chance, a family of rabbits move into the village. I, Miss, Mr. Rabbit, Mrs. Rabbit, Connie, um, uh, and their two children, uh, who are called um, Kent and Bobby for Roberta. Right, very normal sort of rabbit family. And of course, the, uh, as soon as they get there, the, uh, the village decides they, they must leave because, well, you know, they, they breed rabbits and they burrow, you know, and they can basically, you know, over, overrun, you know, a village in, you know, as little as, well, about eight minutes. Um, and it's really about um, uh, my character, Peter Knox, having to deal with this issue and also the fact that um, he knew Connie Rabbit when they were at university together about 25 years before and he had like a little bit of a thing for her. So there's a little bit of tension in the whole sort of rabbit-human thing. But rabbits, rabbits were great fun to write about. And, and the, the, good, the great fun when you're writing an allegorical story is it's not about what the story's about. You know, it's about one thing, but it's actually about another thing. And it was great fun to play with. Um, and rabbits were the sort of ideal medium, you know, as the uh, demonized minority other. Um, because uh, because they're sort of, they're are, they are very other. And, uh, you know, we don't have a very good relationship with rabbits in the past, humans. So, you know, rabbits actually a little bit sort of very, very suspicious of what, they, uh, of what humans might get up to. But the rabbits themselves um, seem to have a great, great old time of it and actually have huge amounts of fun. But divisions within their own uh, society uh, because you can, be, you can be lab stock, wild stock or pet stock. So um, pet stock are always considered a little bit suspicious because they've always cozied up to humans in the past, you know, and all those dandelion leaves and, you know, lettuce and stuff and free carrots. You know, so the wild stock consider themselves, you know, purity when it comes to rabbits. Uh, and lab stock are a bit sort of bit weird because they've had experiments done on them, you know, sort of all that sort of vivisection. It, it just messes with your brain, you know, <laughs> literally. Um, so there's a lot of sort of tension uh, tension going on, which I kind of like to like to play with, and there's a little bit of stuff about you know how I feel about you know being brought up in in Britain today, um, but that's um, I think it's I think it's quite fun, and we got some copies as well for sale um, over in the over in the shop. Um, right, so where are we now? We're about quarter. So let's have some questions. Let's have some questions. Anything at all? I can actually yell them back if you yell them out. I can what? yell them back. We can save. Oh, okay. Uh, it sometimes I, saves a bit of time. If I could, uh, if I could, if we could wait till I've got the microphone to you, okay. and then uh, everybody, everybody will hear. Okay, who's first? Anyone? Get the oh, there you go. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> what a brilliant talk. Um, uh, I I'm really curious about the Bronte Society, mm. the real one in the in our current real world, and whether mm. they had any uh, like. Have you had to do, or your agent or your publisher had to do any kind of brokering around, <laughs> right? You know, the whole kind of yeah, uh, IP and stuff. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, was the Bronte Society um, yeah annoyed with me? Um, no, uh, there is deafening silence from the Bronte, um, the Bronte. Uh, what do they call it? Bronte Federation or Bronte Confederation or Bronte Society? I think it would be, wouldn't it? Bronte Society. Um, no, I mean, I was hoping the air affair would be like in, in the shop up at Hayworth, you know, uh, it isn't. Um, <laughs> I, I did, I did, I was slightly worried because, uh, because, you know, as I said, I come from a very academic family. Um, so, so I'm sort of in mortal fear of academics. So I had this, I had this idea that these, uh, you know, after giving a talk like this, there'd be this sort of dodgy bunch, you know, standing there with pickaxe handles, you know, with a big badge saying, you know, Bronte, like this. And I'd be beaten senseless. How dare you take that? You know, she was a great writer. You know, not like her sister, like this. <laughs> or her brother, boof, like that. And, um, and actually, it was completely opposite, because I did actually meet some people, there, and they came up at the end, uh, the end of a talk. And it's, it's quite interesting, the whole signing cue dynamic. You go, you know, and you sign and everything. I'll be doing that later as well, if you want a book signed. Um, but there's always people who hang back at the signing queue. And, um, and as, uh, when a, si a signing queue is quite long, uh, which is very nice, obviously, the books get warmer and warmer as I sign them, which is quite nice as well, because they're <laughs> being held like this. So by the time you get to the end of the queue, it's like, you know, al almost on fire, you know. Um, but there's always people who hang back because they've got something they want to say and they want something to share, which is, again, is one of the all-time best things about being an author, because then you know you've, you've reached someone or you've, you've touched someone or something you've written or said 
really means something. So quite often they'll pull up a chair, you know, and you go, oh, I've got to get a, like a story here. And then, then you talk, then you hear about a connection between them and their, you know, great grandmother that they didn't have before, but now because of the air affair, they share this and you've given me my great grandmother and blah, blah, and thank you, Mr. Ford and all this. And it's all very emotional. Anyway, so right at th these three people came up to me and they said, um, uh, we're, we've, we're all, you know, we got, we're doctors. And it's like, well, you know, I've got this thing on my neck. No, no, not that sort of doctor. We're like doctors of English literature, and we've been studying Jane Eyre for like, you know, the last 27 years, and all this kind of stuff. And I go, oh my God, you know, I, I can't see the, the pickaxe handles, but clearly, you know, knuckle dusters and those, those things that you flick out, you know, like that. And I thought, here it comes. Uh, and they went, no, they said, we, we absolutely adore it. We really, really love it because it's, it's having fun with what, was a, what has become a study text, right? And, and I think, you know, the way I look at it, and I'm not sure this is entirely right, and again, maybe it's because of my, you know, fear of academics, is that I think there's a lot of really good writing out there that's been taken away from the reading experience and taken into the study experience. And I think, you know, what they say about, you know, if you want to, you know, studying... Studying comedy is like dissecting a frog. You may understand a little bit about how the frog works, but it dies, right? And I think also, if you study Jane Eyre, because Jane Eyre is a fantastic book. I mean, it really is brilliant. Um, and if you study it, then you lose that, that kind of joy, you know? And, and they said, you know, we just felt that there was a joy uh, of, to the Eyre affair and a, and a joy about the classics. Um, and I go on later, you know, to say, you know, that there are books I don't like because some books are very boring, you know, like Pamela, for instance, you know. Or Paradise Lost, you know, it you know, inclines to, what did Margaret Drabble say? Inclines to treat tedium or something like that. You know, and, um, you know, and I, and I, I you know, uh, I think there's, there's some sort of plot device in the book where Thursday next can't die until she's read the seven most boring novels. You know, so that's quite good. You know, just sort of eke out your time until you start reading these boring novels. And, but I foolishly said one of them was Moby Dick. Right, which is a huge treasure in the States, and you don't touch Moby Dick. It's like this major Melvillian wonderland, right? And, and anyway, so this person came up to me, and it is America, and they are armed. And, um, <laughs> and it was, I think it was like sort of Texas or sort of North Carolina or something like that. And they, and they say, okay, you know, Jasper, this, um, I won't do the American accent. Okay, Jasper, this, uh, what do you mean Moby Dick, boring? What are, you, what are you trying to say? What are you trying to say? It's one of the greatest novels written in the English, English language. And I thought, well, I did say it was boring, so I better sort of try and defend my words rather than mealy-mouthy saying, oh, you're so right, I'm so wrong, you know, I'll ring my publishers now, hello, you know, got to, got to change something. I said, well, come on, okay. Yeah, it's great fun. And, and the bit with, you know, chasing the fish, you know, wrong. Um, it's great fun, but okay, can you actually put your hand on your heart and say the Father, uh, Father Maple, I think it is, the Father Maple um, speech, which goes on for an entire chapter, is riveting from word to word. And he went, no, okay, I'll give you that. <laughs> All right, boring in parts. So I kind of I got away with that. But yeah, on the most part, yeah, people are very happy that, they t that I have taken their much-loved books and then put a little sort of odd spin on it, you know, so, you know, quite fun. Anyway, um, another question, another question. Oh, we got two here, there's one at the back there, good. Uh, you said right at the start that storytelling is alive and well. Mm. And um, I wonder when you see groups of young people sitting around a table mm. looking at these, yeah. not talking to each other, yeah. whether storytelling is alive and well. And the, the sort of example I want to give by way of illustration is that a year after the major tsunami uh, in the Indian Ocean, um, BBC Two went back to various places, Thailand coast, Sri Lankan coast, where there was devastation and lots of people lost their lives. But they also went to a remote island in the Bay of Bengal, mm. um, which was almost stone age in existence, and they talked to the head man. No, we knew it was coming. We knew it was coming. Mm. The birds and the animals told us it was coming, and they went up onto the high ground. How did you know? Because our forebears told us and that oral tradition mm. went back for miles and miles. Yeah. But I don't know what my grand, grand, great-grandfather would have told me about yeah. his life. Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, an, in it's an interesting one. Um, you know, I have, I have, you know, I have children who, who are quite old and you know, quite young, a lot of kids. Um, and, and my two, obviously, you know, have their tablets, and they like their tablets. 
Um, but they still like, they're not massive readers. The smaller one is a be better reader than the bigger, the bigger one. But book sales are still good. They're still holding, and it's it can't be just the older you know the older generation, and stories are still being told. And I think what we're seeing is maybe people who would have been novelists in the past are now moving into the streaming services, you know, Netflix and and Apple, and and they're writing now for 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 the screen rather than actually being novelists. So I don't think stories stories might change in the way they're told because you know originally there was no paper. And there was no written language, but we would have had, you know, storytellers, Shanaki in the in the Irish tradition, or soothsayer, who would come along and they would, you know, eat some food and sit around the fire and they would tell stories, and you know, and that would be the payment. Uh, and the payment now is that, you know, you guys hopefully will, you know, um, pay money to to read a story, but the situation is still the same, and you will still pay, um, you know, Netflix whatever it is a month to see their stories. So although we're shifting in the way that stories are being told, I, th I don't think there'll ever be a time when humans won't want stories. And I think it, it's often borne out by the, the enduring popularity of crime, right? Crime is still sells way over all of all the genres. It, it sells so well that it's even almost accepted into the literary world. I mean, that's how, that's how big crime is. Yeah. <laughs> ho, ho, yes, topical joke. Um, yes, not that I'm you know, cynical or anything. Um, and the thing about crime, and this is what's really important about crime, is, is, is something's, something's wrong, something's upset, and it has to be put right. You know, there is a murder, or there is a disappearance, or there is a theft, and this is wrong, right? We know this is wrong as humans. So when we stop reading crime, I think it's all over for us. It really is, because if we can't see that there is something a, a wrong that must be righted, then, then, that's, then that's finished. And yet crime on telly and crime everywhere is still a really big seller. And people watch it all the time because they want to see those imbalances balanced. And, and I think people will always want to see um, stories or listen to stories. But whether they actually read stories, that's, I, I don't know. But I think fundamental to humans, you know, the stories. And we've seen... Um, we've seen flash fiction that kind of had a little little outburst. Um, novellas becoming more popular now because people want a three-hour read rather than a nine-hour read, which is, I think, fair enough. So we're seeing it shifting, but I, I don't see that humans are going like, to stop wanting stories. I must say, but you know, we'll see. We'll see. Right, there was another question up here. We're good. Good five minutes. I'm looking forward to Red Side Story coming out. Ah, thank you. Is there any more to come from that sort of Shades of Grey? Because there was a promise of a trilogy and also a, pre <laughs> a prequel, I believe, standalone prequel possible. Yeah, this is so. Red Side Story is a sequel to Shades of Grey. I kind of like Red Side Story. It's I think it's quite funny. Um, yeah, I mean, foolishly, because because uh, Shades of Grey was I'd written uh, or I'd had published rather because I oh so there is a happy ending to the Humpty Dumpty and Fourth Bear story is after I'd done four Thursday Next books, uh, my publisher said, do you have anything else? And I said, sure, I've got these nursery crimes just sitting on my hard drive gathering electrons. So I'll just brush off the electrons and, and, and here they are. Um, they needed a lot of rewriting. So they were okay, but they weren't polished. You know, so, so I was kind of pleased they needed rewriting. Um, a, a, a good tip for any writers here, if you, if you write something and then go and reread it a month later and go, oh my God, that's the worst thing I've ever written, um, you go, ace, because you can see that. Right? If you can't see it, then you're never going to get any better. But if you read your words and you go, this is awful, or you look at your painting and go, that's terrible, I can, I can, I can do better, or you're sculpting, I know I can do better than that, or, or you're playing, or your song, or whatever, that's the furnace that drives creative endeavor, knowing you're a little bit rubbish. You know, so all those issues, <laughs> issues we might have had in your youth as a, you know, as sort of slightly, you know, worrisome levels of, you know, self-doubt and uncertainty, you can really make it work for you. <laughs> you know, those weaknesses can totally become strengths as long as you've got, hopefully, the drive to carry it on and through. Um, anyway, so, so the reason that Shades of Grey came about was it was like, well, I'm going to write a proper novel. Uh, with real characters, my own characters, because essentially, as I said, I was moving furniture in people's heads. 
with the Thursday Next series and the nursery crime. So I just went completely the other way and did this very, very high sort of concept idea. And foolishly, right, I wrote in the back of it two more books that were going to follow it. <laughs> big mistake, right, big mistake, because Shades of Grey didn't sell very well, right, uh, because I wasn't doing what I usually did, and I didn't realise that, you know, I thought people would follow me, I could just write anything, you know, and people would follow me to the ends of the world. So now, you know, people are interested in one thing. But the air affair, uh, not the air affair, but Shades of Grey had this sort of slow rise of interest, and the first one was written about 10, 11 years ago now, and I always said I would do a sequel, and about five years ago, every single email I got was, when is there going to be a sequel to Shades of Grey? Because I really like this book. It's completely bizarre. I have to know what happens next, because it's a totally cliffhanger ending, as you'll attest. Um, so finally, I decided to write a sequel, um, and it literally carries on about two weeks after the last one finishes. So we're just straight into it again, and it's more bizarre you know, happenings around visual colour and internal village politics. So it's very, it's very internal, very opposite to, uh, kind of opposite to 1984, we have this externalised menace. This one is more of an internalised menace. So you have a village and it's like being bossed around by the community council, right? It's a community council decide whether you're going to go into prison or not. It's that kind of, you know, small town, you know, village politics. And that's where the terror comes from, a very sort of introverted kind of terror. So I'm going to write, as, as I said, I'm writing number two at the moment. Uh, number three, don't know, another 10 years? See how it sells. <laughs> well, get all your mates to buy it. Yeah, get everyone to buy it. It, it, it kind of, you know, I don't know. We'll see, we'll see. But the, after that, the next plan is to write um, a, uh, the eighth in the Thursday Next series, which would actually finish the, uh, finish the series. And once I've kind of finished series, then I can move on to doing just standalone books, which are quite fun, novellas, and um, just sort of, just have a bit of fun, you know. But anyway, um, time for one more question, I think. If we, oh, we got at the front here. Yeah. Hang on, you got the, got the mic. You know, like you wrote your first book, and, and well, you weren't going to be famous, so it didn't matter. Mm. Did you enjoy writing then more or less than now? So uh, yeah. I haven't explained that. It's actually well. a good question, that, because this has been my sole form of um, income for the last 22 years, right? So it, there's a different relationship with your work when you're doing it for fun and when you're doing it for work. Um, and I think the difference is, oh, the difference is um, deadlines. Um, not so much reader expectation. That's, that's a wonderful thing to play with um, because people now know the sort of way in which I write, but I know that, so I can wrong-foot them. You thought I was going to do this because I did that, but I can actually do this, and I can wrong-foot wrong you in a new and exciting way because you know how I write. So um, you can sort of be almost self-referentially sort of bizarre, you know, which sort of I think is a better reading experience for someone who reads me. Um, it's still great fun. I really, really enjoy it, and I think one of the one of the really fun bits about um, uh, about writing is when you have a really good idea, and it could have taken you seven hours of writing, and I can work for seven hours like this, and it's you know rubbish. And I go and take the dog for a walk, and I come back, and then I kind of ace it in like two minutes, and it's like right, did that take two minutes to write, or seven hours and two minutes? <laughs> but when an idea comes and it all kind of fits together and everything kind of works, there is a there's still that sense of excitement. I really still enjoy that. And I don't know whether that's me, because I'm, s I'm still big into, um, I don't know whether there's a, there's a kind of link here, I'm still big into um, film photography, right? So I, I, I have an old Rotaflex and I shoot on film. But for me, the processing it, and you get it in the fixer and the washer, and then you do that and you look at it, there's still that little thing, you know, that excites me in the same way that writing, and I get an idea and I go, ooh, this is good, this is going to work, and then it's all very exciting. So I think the answer is that I'm under a lot of pressure still now because of, of deadlines and, and money and stuff like that, but it, it's, it's still enjoyable. I, I really do love it. And I think, you know, if someone said, you know, if, if the air affair never found, a, never found a, a, a buyer, would you still be writing? And I went, yeah, I'd, just be, I'd still be in the film industry, and I'd have like 17 unpublished novels you know, under my belt, you know, rather than six and a half. So, um, but when you discover something that you really love and you can't leave it alone, you know, it's with you for life. And I was, I, I was an author, I just didn't know it. You know, I, and it took me, I had to get to be 27 before I realised it. 
And when, I, when I'm talking to children, you know, I go into talk to schools and stuff like that. And, and the thing about talking to kids is you actually want to take only two or three things into the talk, even though it's an hour, that really stick with them. And one of them is that writing is not something other people do. You know, all those writers that you read about, whatever they write, whether it's Stranger Things or anything on the telly, they all had writers behind them. And all those writers were someone exactly like you sitting there. You know, it's not something a clever people do. It's something that people with an imagination and drive and everything else do. It's not something other people do. So, and I think once you, you find that, you know, uh, uh, and, and you find what you want to do, you fall in love with it and it just stays with you. I'll be, I'll be writing until they, they're, you know, nailing the coffin lid down, you know. Wait a moment, I've I got another chapter. Oh, for Christ's sake, Ford. <laughs> you, know. you know, I just want to change something. So, um, Anyway, well, I hope that's uh, I hope that's given you a little bit of a sort of you know sort of little a little romp around my uh, uh, my um, origin story. Um, very happy to sign books up in the bookshop. There's tons of books there uh, for sale. So um, thank you, Cornwall. Thank you, audience. Thank you, Jasper. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.